Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And the idea that we are holding on to what is static or the status quo about ourselves disallows for the beauty of evolution and certainly the beauty of pivoting. Welcome to She Pivots, the podcast where we talk with women who dared to pivot out of one career and into something new and explore how their personal lives impacted these decisions. I'm your host, Emily Tish sussman I'm so excited to introduce this episode. It was our first ever live podcast in front of an audience. I had the honor to interview the Stacey London. Yes, that Stacey London. I spent my college days obsessed with what not to wear, wishing somewhat ironically that I too could be made over by the illustrious Stacey and Clinton. To say this interview is a dream come true is not far off, and to do it where I grew up and then sent my kids for school was surreal. Thank you so much to the Marlene Meyerson Jewish Community Center in New York for hosting us and for Stacy for being the perfect first She Pivots live guest. I also just want to note that since our interview, Stacy's company that she references, State of Menopause, did their own pivot. Now they're no longer selling product, but still doing important work around menopause. Let's get into it. I am so excited to introduce one of tonight's speakers, Emily Tish Sussman. Emily is truly a force in every sense of the word. A podcast host, women's empowerment and family policy advocate, leading political strategist, contributor to Marie Claire and Parent Magazine, please give a warm welcome to Emily Tish Sussman. Thank you. So this is our first ever podcast live taping of She Pivots. Stacey London is truly a woman who needs no introduction. 
Stacey has had a huge impact on unscripted TV, on the way that we think about fashion, on showing empathy towards people that we may not know or necessarily agree with. Stacey has paved the way in so many ways. And now she's moved on to a new venture, starting State of, taking on something that we were just talking about this backstage. We don't have an education and how to begin thinking about menopause, how to begin thinking about the next phase of our reproductive lives. Stacey is paving the way in that way now. So I am so excited to be joined by Stacey London. Please give her a huge round of applause. Hello. Hello, everybody. Well, Stacey, thank you so much for joining us. I want to start at the beginning. Did you always know that you were going to be in fashion? Like, were you a really stylish kid? I really knew that I wanted to go into fashion around 16. I was diagnosed at three and a half with psoriasis. I had a skin disease. I still have it. I just have it under control. But by the time I was 11, I was covered in scales from my neck down. I had it in my scalp, so I had terrible dandruff, so I only wore long-sleeve white turtlenecks and corduroy pants, even in the summer. And there was something so confining about that, that I used to envy the beauty of people who could wear whatever they wanted and show off their skin, or even not, just have style and, and look beautiful, right? But I very much believe that I gravitated towards fashion out of insecurity, but I went to Vogue straight out of college, which is a, also a total fluke. And really, it was just luck. At the time, Advanced Publications, which was Newhouse Family's company, uh, the Newhouses, they had Random House. And I got an interview to be an assistant to a book editor. And I didn't realize you had to take a typing test and see how many words you could type a minute. Well, I am here to tell you that I, not to brag, typed seven words and five of them are misspelled. <laughs> and this guy took one look at my uh, typing test and he was like, I wonder if you would be better in magazines. <laughs> but he called his counterpart at Condé Nast and said, I, I really, you know, I like this girl. She's sweet. She's funny. And she really does seem to be interested in fashion. And I remember the woman at the time who was the head of HR said, we don't have any positions, but okay, she can come do like a trial interview and we'll see how it goes. Well, turns out we went to the same college and that was, let me tell you, this is why like staying in touch with alumni is always a good idea. And she liked me and it was February of my senior year of college. I hadn't even graduated and she called me just after I graduated in June and said, we have a job at Vogue. Do you want it? So she started at Vogue just three years after Anna Wintour took the helm, truly the height of magazines. You know, this was like the golden age of print. My first week of working at Vogue, I was wearing my teal stirrup stretch pants from Express. Thank you. And a brown and black houndstooth blouse from Agnes B that had silver buttons. And nobody told me that you don't get into an elevator alone with Anna. Nobody told me. So I get into this elevator. She is standing in the corner with these huge sunglasses on. And yet you can feel her like eyes scanning my outfit head to toe and back up again. It was the longest ride from the 13th floor. Have you seen her since? I have. And she's actually quite lovely. It really, you know, I was- But did she remember that outfit? No, she did not remember that outfit. Like most first jobs, Stacy grew out of Vogue, looking for more upward mobility 
and a chance to find her voice in the fashion industry. I was really excited. I went to Mademoiselle twice. I went, I was a fashion assistant at Vogue for Andre Leon Talley, Phyllis Posnick, and Bronna Wolf all at the same time. So I had a color-coded office and a lot to remember. And then I went when Gabby Duphelt became the editor-in-chief of Mademoiselle at the same time that James Truman was the editor-in-chief of Details. Elizabeth Saltzman was the creative director and I went to see her because I had been friendly with her at Vogue. And I, I said, you know, I, I'm not very happy and I would love to do something else. And they had hired a new fashion director from England named Debbie Mason, who to this day, I simply adore, who was the first person sort of not to treat me as like a kid who didn't know anything, asked my opinion. <gasps> you know, I mean, it was just, it was such a revelation. So I went to work there for a couple of years. And then when Gabby was fired, pretty much everybody left. And I went, again, went freelance and thought, okay, I'll just assist all the great freelance stylists, which I did. But at some point I had to decide, like, either I'm going to be the best freelance first assistant for fashion stylists, or I'm going to do it on my own. And I asked my dad in advance if he would help me with rent. I said, give me six months. Let me see if I can start styling on my own. So I stopped taking assistant jobs and slowly but surely, photographers like Wayne Mazur helped me out. Then Mademoiselle came calling. She had the opportunity to work there for a second time. They were looking for a New York editor. I was the senior fashion editor at Mademoiselle Magazine, for those of you who remember her. May she rest. <laughs> um, and I was fired by the editor-in-chief that destroyed that magazine. So I feel pretty smarmy about it all. <laughs> um, I had a lot of success early on in magazines and it was kind of a punch in the face to be fired, but at the same time, incredibly humbling. And I do say that that was one of the most pivotal and important experiences of my life. I really spent a lot of my life trying to be an overachiever. And the idea that somebody would fire me just literally never occurred to me. I thought if you do a good job, you get to keep your job. And it was very eye-opening and I really do recommend it. And I say that knowing that it sounds very privileged to say, go get yourself fired. Why not? You don't have bills to pay. But really what I mean by that is it is sometimes essential for someone or something out of your control to shut a door on you in order for you to find your path, in order for you to find the door that opens or the window or whatever metaphor really does it for you. But when I got fired, I really didn't know what I wanted to do, but I did have an agent. So I would take jobs, but they weren't fashion styling jobs. They were like, you know, dress a dad and his daughter on their way to go to a bank commercial, right? Or a high C commercial where I was like up till, you know, three o'clock in the morning, like sewing patches on, you know, denim overalls things that felt much more like real life. It was about how do you make something believable? How do you make something feel real? How do you show off what somebody's trying to say about themselves? It was a very different experience. Like it could be that I put, you know, a mom in, in crop jeans and a button down shirt, but the fact that I distressed those jeans or that I learned how to make that shirt look worn and yet crisp or all the different things to make that mom as believable as if she had dressed herself that day became really interesting to me. And the idea of personality expressed through style became interesting to me. How am I conveying the message that this client wants you to see in this commercial or this ad? When did you start to see yourself as a player in those narratives, moving to the screen 
in what not to wear. Like, did you? There was no plan here, guys. Let me just be clear. Um, I had no idea that I was going to go into television. My agents got a phone call from someone. Okay, all I know is that there was a C involved. It was either ABC, NBC, TLC, BBC. They were looking for hosts. They wanted somebody who had worked with celebrities, which I had done a lot of covers at Mademoiselle. And they wanted somebody who had dressed real people, somebody who had editorial experience, and somebody who could talk a lot without a script. And my agent said, I know exactly who you need to meet. And um, I did eight, maybe eight screen tests. I've told the story several times. The last one, I was on vacation with my family in Spain and I got a phone call from my agent and she said, you've got to come back. They're doing one last like meet and greet with the top 27 candidates. And I was so offended. I mean, I don't know. I was like 27. They couldn't knock it down to 10. Like, and at that point, there had been a running joke. I mean, almost every stylist in New York auditioned for that show or said they'd already gotten the part. So I really didn't take it very seriously anymore. And I said to my agent, they have me on camera. Like, what more do they want? You know, they asked me one day in the middle of a park, to pretend that I was commenting on like the Oscars red carpet and to talk, imagine, just imaginary, talk to, oh, Angelina Jolie, who are you wearing? Love that dress, really emphasizes your <laughs> curves. How'd you choose green this season? Like make it up as you go, right? I mean, it was crazy. So I was like, they know me. If they don't, I don't know what I have to come back for. I'm not coming. And my stepmother, I got off the phone and I, you know, we went to dinner. I was saying it, telling my, my stepmother and my dad what happened. And my stepmother said, oh, okay, you're an idiot. <laughs> We're getting you on a plane tomorrow. You're going home. You're going to that last screen test because you are going to get this job and it is going to change your life. And she was 1000% right. I got the job and it totally changed my life. I thought I'm going to do 11 episodes, which is how many were in the first season and I will be able to charge clients more because I'll be able to say I was once on television. 12 years later, today's <laughs> show, Access Hollywood, Oprah, Pantene, Woolite, Dr. Scholl's, I mean, Lee Jeans, the list went on. It was a, a much bigger opportunity than I recognized when it first happened. Hi, Courtney. Hi. I'm Clinton. And I'm Stacy. And we're from TLC. TLC's What Not to Wear. wear. And now, a TLC summer sneak peek of the season premiere of What Not to Wear. It's her. It's Blossom. It's Mayim Bialik, all grown up. Oh. And this summer, it's more than just styles that are changing. So today... The two is helping us surprise Tanya. Tanya thinks she's going to have a seat at our coveted tasting table to sample Stacey's soup. I mean, every episode was basically about changing these women's lives and helping them into their pivot. Like helping them oh, figure out question. their own confidence. What helped you prepare for that? I was very lucky, right? And I do believe very much in connecting the dots backwards. You can always connect the dots backwards. I went to college and I could not decide on a major. And I had a dad who was a professor and the founding dean of a college at NYU called Gallatin. And Gallatin's only requirement is one course on great books. You can decide your major. You can decide every course that you're going to take from any other college at NYU. So I declared an independent major in philosophy, psychology, and literature with an emphasis on the creation of self in character. And I have been obsessed with the concept of self for as long as I can remember, even in high school. And I had no idea that studying philosophy, especially German philosophy, German existentialism, 
would have such an impact at like something so completely different. So here I'd been trained by stylists to really understand how to style photography and film for high fashion. And then I'd gone on to learn how to dress real people and men and children and all, you know, walks of life, basically. And then I had this really funny background in understanding human psychology and philosophy. I honestly walked onto the set of What Not to Wear and I thought, oh, I'm home. Like I knew exactly, I'm getting emotional even just thinking about it. I, I knew exactly what to do. And the most amazing thing to come out of that show for me was that the reason I was good at being snarky was because like, guess what? You know, I'm like the most self-critical person you could possibly imagine. That's where criticism, great criticism comes from being, you know, having an inner critic. But working with all of those people, which was, you know, well over 600 individuals, what I really took away from it was most of the people that we made over were women. To hear the way they thought about themselves, to hear the mean things that they would say to themselves, I couldn't bear it. I, I mean, I saw the potential in every single one of our, our guests. I saw things in them that they clearly could not see. And I couldn't believe it. And I had such empathy and such compassion for them. And it really made me realize, like, how can I be so awful? How can I have this inner, bitchy, malignant critic in my head about me? If I am going to spend all this time and energy really getting to know people, to empathize with them, to have compassion for them, why can't I do that for myself? you have got to give yourself a little bit of credit. You've done some great things here. You've, you've managed to create a career out of nothing and nowhere. And it really was quite meaningful to me. It, it changed my sense of self-esteem by being able to help others. How did you manage all of that emotion as you were, I mean, you were on that show for a very long time. And I, yes. you know, you did story after story after story. Some were harder than others. For every minute that was aired, it took at least an hour to shoot. So there was a lot of stuff that happened that was incredibly emotional. And I have to say my co-host and a lot of the crew, they were very good at separating what happened on set as opposed to like what happened when you left set. There were a lot of episodes that really like stuck with me that were hard for me to let go of. I feel like what's an extra complication about it is that you didn't go through that emotional toll yourself, but that you had to do it with someone else because you had a co-host. I mean, it was like being married, you know, like, I mean, I had a work husband. It was very difficult. And we were, we were both under a lot of pressure in similar and different ways, you know, and we both had very big side hustles. So, you know, it was a lot of work. It was a lot of time. And there were days where we wanted to kill each other. And there were days where we were a complete united front against, you know, the man <laughs> um, and uh, the system. But we both, I think, had real highs and lows on that show. I really do. I, I think we both understood in retrospect how meaningful and important it was in terms of like the dawn of unscripted television. Yeah. And I think we also recognized that it was really important because we made style accessible. That was the thing that also made me so proud is we made it part of your everyday vernacular to talk about what you wanted to wear or what you wanted to express about yourself and what you wore or what was right for your body shape in a way that, you know, you only got from how-to pages in magazines before that. 
we really were a very revolutionary show and I still hold my head high. And, you know, the great thing about what not to wear was that, yeah, it was meant to be entertaining. I hope that you were entertained. We just didn't expect how emotional it was going to be. Honestly, we didn't realize how quickly it would become so educational that people would actually like take our rules and go shopping with them. I watched a couple of the English shows and I thought, why are these women like grabbing their fat and their boobs? And it was very different. And we had a very different mandate as the American show. The first few seasons, we were told to be nasty. And guess what? That doesn't really work if you don't have a British accent. <laughs> and, and also, we were finding it really hard to be so mean, even though the idea was to break you down, to build you back up better, right? Even our snarkiness got more empathetic. And, you know, there were so many different heads of Discovery, which was the parent company, so many different heads of TLC in the years that I was there that we got a different mandate every couple of seasons. And we just basically did what we wanted in the end because <laughs> we just were like, all right, somebody else has another opinion. As the seasons of What Not to Wear came and went, Stacy found a world of opportunities. But from sponsorships to speaking engagements, also with the demands of hosting the show, it all became overwhelming, especially after struggling with chronic illness for years. But, um, but you know, when I got psoriasis, I was four. It was there was nothing that people knew about the disease then. I, I mean, I had it so severely. I was in medical journals. Nobody knew what to do then. They were throwing, you know, crap at the wall and just trying to see what stuck. I have to say. If you watch that show, if you ever watched it, if you're fans of it, you will see in that last season how much I was struggling. I was really ill and I did not know why. I was in pain all the time physically. I would be able to fit into a pair of shoes one day and the next I couldn't. I was exhausted constantly. I would gain weight overnight for no reason. I mean, I was like swelling up and I felt awful, just awful. And I even went to TLC and I said, you know, I, I've got to stop. Whatever is happening, this, this has just all become too much. And 10 years seems like a good long run and you're going to get 12 seasons out of it. And they asked me, you know, I said, I want to do 12 episodes for the last season. And they asked me to do 26. We went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. I finally was like, okay, I will do it. I'll make it through. But I look back at those episodes and I feel so crazy because it doesn't even remind me of me. I was so tired and I was so relieved, really, honestly, when they originally said they were going to keep going with the show. They were just going to recast me. And I think that the, the final decision really to cancel the show came from, well, what are we going to do? We're going to spend all this money to promote a new show. And the only thing that will be different is the original host will be gone. And we don't know how that's going to play. And also after 10 years, I think the show was kind of getting rote. You know, we were pretty steady in the ratings, but not going up. And we would have had to do something anyway. So I really felt like it was a very natural, organic ending to the show. I mean, that, those 10 years that you were on, the world around you really did change. Like you were really at the forefront of unscripted. And by the time you went off, it's in, I actually think it's, it's pretty interesting that your ratings stayed consistent. Yeah, they did. Which I think says a lot for you as the personalities because the format of TV and the, and the rise of social media had changed so much by the time you were off. I remember sitting at a dinner with my agents and they were telling me how they were signing bloggers 
And I was like, what is a blogger? <laughs> and then, you know, bloggers became influencers. And now everybody has a personal brand if they have a social media account. And I don't, I don't know anything about personal branding, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> that's, not, that's not my jam. So, you know, it's funny. I don't feel like the jump to social media was very easy for me at all. I have a really hard time with, it's very easy for me to be in front of a camera, but like talking to my phone, all of a sudden I feel very self-conscious. Well, you've said that we've gone from a how-to culture to a me-to culture. That is correct. Yes. Tell us more about that. So I love that you know that quote. I think that back in the day when, you know, it was sort of unscripted television was just on the rise. That was 2002 when I started on What Not To Wear. We were looking for experts. We loved being told what to do by experts. We had a real interest in that, right? How to culture, how to dress, how to style your room, trading spaces. You know, we were on the forefront of that kind of television. The learning channel is what TLC was, right? And then I think as the advent of social media and and just the rise of the internet started, right? One of the things was that you didn't need appointment television. That's one thing. You know, you didn't have to wait until Friday to watch us at nine o'clock. But also you had access to people in a very different way. Whereas you could not just only write to people you'd seen on television, you could start following people on Instagram who just looked cool. And that wasn't about them being experts, right? Maybe you still want somebody who has 10,000 hours or more of experience if they're like your pilot, but not if you are just already interested in the way somebody appears because that appeals to you. To me, we started to value shared experience and value our own opinions over those of being taught to us by an expert. That social media allowed for us to all be our own authorities in a way. And we didn't have to look to people for that same kind of how-to, certainly when it came to style, certainly when it came to personal expression. And it became much more about this is who I am, not this is what somebody told me to be. And look, if I could do what not to wear again, it would not be what not to wear. One, I would never have the gotcha I would never let friends and family secretly nominate somebody. And, you know, I briefly did another show on TLC called Love, Lust, Run, where everyone self-nominated. And part of the reason for that was because I wanted people to come to me and say, what am I doing wrong? How do I get what I want? What is the message that I am giving? Transmission versus translation. What do you think you're transmitting to the world and what is the world translating? And there's a big disconnect sometimes and people can get very frustrated. But that to me was not the same thing as making somebody over. That to me was sort of trying to sharpen and hone what somebody already knew they wanted. That felt more in keeping with the way I'd like to work with people. You do speak a lot about your midlife crisis, like what you call your (laughs) midlife crisis. Crises. (laughs) Let's be clear, there were multiples. Yeah. Well, the way you talk about it resonates a lot with me when I think about what is leading to a pivot, like a pivot in somebody's life. Sure. That you have, you kind of have to go down. Like you have to feel like you don't have other options to force it. I think a little bit, like I like to think of, you can't get to the midlife renaissance without the midlife crisis. At, you know, around 47, I had done what not to wear, burned out, took a bunch of time off, developed a series that I sold that was a talk show for syndication that never got made. Then I did Love Lester Run. And then I guest hosted on The View for about a year. And 
slowly but surely, I stopped getting as many phone calls and people wanted me to do things that I found distasteful and not in keeping with the ethos that I'd already had around television and who I wanted to be on television. And it just didn't appeal to me. The kinds of things that were coming felt a little crass and television was turning into something else. And I realized also like my phone just isn't ringing. Maybe I'm aging out of TV. Maybe I'm just not the flavor of the month anymore, which is pretty painful, sure. And I had to kind of look at that. But I also thought, oh, well, this is really interesting. I can't be the only one who feels completely crazy and out of control, right? I mean, here I am, 47, like all of a sudden I'm starting to look a little bit different. I don't feel the same. What did you think was more surprising to you as you started to go through menopause? Well, I didn't know that I was in menopause. I thought menopause happened to old people and I thought it was optional. I thought my career was falling apart and therefore I was falling apart. I was not married. I did not have children. So many people were like, well, you're married to your career. Nobody marries their career. You can love your career. You can want your career. You can prioritize your career over a family or close relationships. You can do all of that, but you cannot marry your career. And I found it really insulting because I I don't want to be married to my career. I wanted a career that I loved and I pursued it at the expense of maybe other things. But recognizing that that career was kind of slowing down really made me feel very lonely, very isolated. And I had a real identity crisis. And I thought, okay, well then let's go make a show about that. And so I went to pitch a show about midlife, about midlife transformation, about what a midlife crisis could be in something amazing. And I didn't just want to do it in fashion because I really think midlife is an amazing time to reinvent yourself in terms of style. And we don't actually look at that enough, but also everything else that comes with midlife. What is happening to us hormonally? Because I thought I was batshit crazy. I mean, I was like ready to commit myself. I was like, how are all of these things happening? What is happening to me? Am I sick? What is wrong? Let's talk about all of the things that are happening in midlife. Maybe you're going through childcare or empty nesting. Maybe you're dealing with elder care or dying parents. Maybe you're 45 to 55, highest rate of decreased earning potential in women, highest rate of depression, highest rate of divorce. What if we talk about a jumpstart for the rest of your life? Not the second half, the third act, right? We're not dying in our 60s. We're dying in our 90s. And I thought, what an incredible show. Crickets. No network, no streamer. Everybody said to me, nobody wants to watch a show about middle-aged women in crisis. We need to learn how to revere age by sharing that with younger people. What can we learn from younger generations? And what can we still teach them, right? This idea that we have nothing to teach them because we grew up with rotary phones does not... It it, it just doesn't make any sense. I was like, there's a real multi-generational mentorship aspect to this. I am open about what kind of crisis I'm having. I'm open when I found out what I was experiencing with menopause because I've been taught by younger generations who are so open and systemically breaking down ideas about race and gender and sexuality. Why am I not doing that about age? Why are we not all doing that about age? It is the one bias we don't seem to be able to get rid of that easily or really shine a light on. And ageism is separate from menopause, right? We conflate 
aging and menopause all the time. Menopause can happen at any age, surgical and medical, but chronological is the most common, which is that you arrive at menopause or perimenopause somewhere between 40 and 60. And that's the one you know about with the hot flashes and the night sweats and the vaginal dryness and the insomnia and the joint pain and the food allergies and the brain fog. And I could go on and on and on and on. And any one of those things you might dismiss. You might not even connect them. You might not realize that your anxiety is going through the roof because your hormones are in chaos. You might be prescribed antidepressants instead of looking at the whole picture and understanding that this is a natural transition. We are ashamed of menopause because we've been taught to be ashamed of aging, right? Culturally, there is an invalidation that happens to women as they age. And the one-two ha-ha punch of it all is that you start to feel crazy at the same time culture starts to ignore you, which makes you feel even crazier. So... I was experiencing all of that and really looking for a way to make that meaningful, which is basically what I've tried to do at every stage of my career. How do we find meaning and purpose in who we are and where we are at every stage of life, knowing that things don't always stay the same? And the idea that we are holding on to what is static or the status quo about ourselves disallows for the beauty of evolution and certainly the beauty of pivoting. And I just had to decide, you know what? I'm not going to be Stacy from what not to wear anymore. I'm going to be Stacy new, new 2.0 Stacy, new 3.0 Stacy. It was nearly perfect timing when she was then asked to be a beta tester for State of Menopause, a company that supports women as they go through it. Oh my God. Yes, yes, yes. Let me be a beta tester. I don't know what it's like to have products that address anything in menopause because I didn't even know that's what was happening to me. And all my doctors were saying, "Eh, you know, it might be menopause. You'll get through it. And I thought I, I was like, I must be overreacting, but I wasn't. And I wasn't informed. And because I wasn't informed, I felt afraid. And the last thing I thought was, if I feel this way, I can't be the only one. And now 1 billion people are going to be in some stage of menopause by 2025. That's a lot of people who might feel alone. And I wanted to get the jump on 12% of the population and certainly the 52% of the population who will go through this and make sure that you are educated and that you don't feel alone, that you know what your solutions are, that there are a spectrum of answers, that everybody may experience this differently. And, you know, 52% of the population will experience it, but 100% of the population will be impacted by people going through this and not knowing anything about it or how your body is going to change or how you're going to feel psychologically just feels like another iniquity that women or those who identify as women have had to face forever. So where do you want to take it? Is it building communities? Is it specific product? Like, how do you think we're going to get at it? Great question. I have been running this company now for almost 18 months. They were going to close the entire company. They wanted to pivot away from consumer product goods and go into technology And so I bought the majority share of the brand and decided that I would 
start to look at the products and see, you know, which ones were most essential because I thought it was a little short-sighted to think of menopause as a beauty brand. I think menopause is its own vertical. It does not belong in beauty. It certainly belongs much more in health and wellness, but there are beauty aspects to it, right? We want our skin not to feel dry as sandpaper. We don't want brittle hair. A lot of things that do change about us physically can be mitigated, certainly by products that, you know, we might put in a beauty category. But I thought, no, it, it needs to be more than that. And what can what can we offer that can be over-the-counter, non-hormonal, something that if you feel like you can't take hormones, don't want to take hormones, are afraid of hormones, which by the way, you don't have to be really truly. There was a study that villainized hormones in the 90s or early aughts. So where are the over-the-counter products that mitigate some of these more annoying issues or symptoms, I might say, in menopause that interfere with the quality of your daily life. It is hard to be in a meeting if you are having a massive hot flash or panic attack or anxiety or headaches or joint pain or breast tenderness or muscle fatigue or any of the things that can happen. So one, we have to educate people, but two, we need to have product so that we're not just coming to this conversation to say, hey, we know you're suffering. <laughs> no, it's not about suffering. We want to make sure that we are improving this time in your life so that you can make more of it than you ever thought possible. I think it's astounding. We would never let a child go through puberty without telling them what was going to happen. We don't let people go and get pregnant without knowing about the birds and the bees for the most part. But it is also about what are we talking about now and not, you know, being perfect. That pregnancy can be hard, that it can be difficult, that raising children is hard, that postpartum depression is real, infertility is painful. And yet if we talk about these things, then we create community, we create safe spaces, and we create a way in which to move forward from things that are hard. And I will never sugarcoat the fact that I think menopause and midlife is a very hard stage of life for really mostly women to accept. Truly, right? Men have a midlife crisis and I'm being very binary and gendered here, you know, and they get hair plugs and Viagra and a, maybe a bomber jacket, a Porsche and a new girlfriend. Um, <laughs> with women, it is much more complicated in terms of how we transcend the last version of ourselves, how we let go of who we were to become who we are. And I will tell you, I spent all my time on what not to wear, trying to get people to see themselves for who they are now. And that's really what I want to do with State of Menopause. We want education and product selection and community, places where you can go to find out the best doctors in your area, who first-person accounts of people who have experienced menopause in surgical or uh, medical when they were in their 20s, or people who experienced it late in their 60s. We want you to hear from physicians. We want you to hear from care practitioners. There are so many opportunities at this stage of life right? And I think you, know, you said this so eloquently, Emily, like some of the best ideas or some of the most incredible pivots start because we are in some sort of crisis ourselves, that we need the kind of help that we then go out and create for other people. And that's certainly, I think, what's been the through line of my career. How can I make somebody see themselves in a new light, in a better light, in a more 
anticipatory way for what's coming instead of being afraid of what's coming, right? We're always afraid of what's in the dark. And I always say that innovating for menopause is like innovating for the darkness, right? It's like, if you don't know what's under the bed, then it looks like a monster. Then that's what you see. But if you shine a flashlight, you're like, oh, dust bunnies, easy. I can take care of those. And that's what this is about. How do we give you more agency? How do we give you more agency over style? How do we give you more agency over wellness? How do we give you more agency so that you always feel like you are in control of the narrative of your life? How do we turn that crisis into the midlife renaissance? I mean, I think it starts with acknowledging the crisis, right? If you fight that, which I really tried to do, I was like, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. The more that you kind of, you know, box yourself in, I think the harder it becomes. And the more that you stay attached to whatever version of yourself you're holding onto so tightly is probably what's going to keep you stuck, right? I really had to say, it's okay to feel like I'm in pain. It's okay to feel like this is hard. I think anytime that our perception of ourselves is attached to something that is past, we are doing ourselves a disservice. The Renaissance is when you are like, come at me, let me have it. And really, look, I didn't think I was going to change careers until COVID, until I was like, I am not getting anywhere. I do not want to talk about like what white blouse you should buy this week. Something needs to mean more to me. And what was underneath style was more about concept of self and self-confidence and self-esteem and self-love and self-acceptance. And here I was in midlife destroying, like tearing myself apart. And I thought, I cannot be the only one who feels this way. If you are feeling stuck, remember, you are not the only one. And the one thing, again, I keep saying, and the one thing, the other thing, there's many things, is that I invite you when you start to really, you know, if you do feel like you're in crisis, what is your kernel of truth? Because it may not be the thing that you think it is. It wasn't about style for me. That's not what it was. What not to wear was never about the clothes. It was never about the clothes. So for me, menopause, strangely enough, I call it the mercury and retrograde phase of life. It is the time to listen, to receive, to pause, to focus on your needs and then pivot, then decide how to move forward. Thank you so much, Stacey, for coming here. Thank you to JPC for winning the J. Thank you guys so much. Thank you for well, having me. Thank you me. so much, everyone. Stacy is tirelessly worked to build community and understanding about this new and dare I say, exciting stage of life. She runs events with other like-minded companies, embracing changing the narrative around women's health and wellness. A New York City native, she lives in Brooklyn with her partner, Kat. Thanks for listening to this episode of She Pivots where I talk with women about how their experiences and significant personal events led to their pivot and eventually their success. To learn more about Stacy, follow her on Instagram at Stacy London Real. Leave a rating and comment if you enjoyed this episode to help others learn about it. A special thank you to our partner, Marie Claire, and the team that made this episode possible. Talk to you next week. She Pivots is hosted by me, Emily Tish sussman produced by Emily Edda Voloshik, 
with sound editing and mixing from Nina Pollock and research and planning from Christine Dickison and Hannah Cousins. I endorse T-Pivots. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 